It's really good to see you. I've kind of done a Josie rabbit hole. I I hope you didn't find anything too embarrassing. Just one thing. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. There was a really funny picture of you drinking champagne under your friend's like bridal gown. But Oh, no. Please send it to me so I know what you're talking about and <laughs> okay. also kill my friends. Um, no, I- <laughs> you were like, I don't care. I don't care. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed. In every episode, I speak to one woman who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And we're doing this blitz mini season all about my home state of Georgia, where the runoff elections for the Senate have the nation holding their breath. The two Republican incumbents are being challenged in an unusual runoff, and the power of the Senate hangs in the balance. Now, while the men running this country continue to captivate a nation on false allegations of voter fraud, the women on the ground in Georgia have been working, like Josie Duffy Rice. I am president of The Appeal. We are a website that publishes original journalism about the criminal justice system and other systems that affect vulnerable people. Josie is a writer, and you may have seen her work in The New York Times or Vanity Fair, and she's a lawyer with a JD from Harvard. But her main focus is criminal justice reform. Josie is the president of The Appeal, which is a platform for journalists who cover criminal justice at the local and regional levels and then hold officials accountable. For example, The Appeal recently reported that prisons contributed to more than half a million cases of COVID-19 across the country. You see, the spread went way beyond the walls of their own facilities. And so the appeal then takes an investigation like this and will make specific policy recommendations for specific key players. And then they follow up on the status to enact policy reform, and they do it all publicly. Criminal justice reform is one of the top policy issues for Georgia voters. Georgia has some of the largest numbers in the country for those who are under the correctional system or have a close family member who is under supervision. So it affects a lot of Georgians. Josie and I went to the same pre-K in Atlanta, which is still there today. And we share a web of very strong, very powerful women in Atlanta, and we have a a mutual bestie. And while the whole country, it feels, turns its eye onto my home state, I really wanted to paint a picture of what I know and what I love about Georgia, showcasing the dynamic and badass women doing amazing work on the ground and sometimes behind the scenes. It feels like a real privilege to talk to you in this specific way. Like, I feel like I've only known you in the personal drinking out our bridal gown spheres. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of my goals of this mini series is to one, capture what the Georgia runoffs mean to different characters. But I also really want to capture like the incredible people that live, dream and build in Georgia. I totally agree. There's so much amazing stuff happening in Georgia. There's so many people on the ground. There's so many people working. And we get such a bad rep, I think, kind of nationally. There's sort of this, like, let's just let the South go. They can form their own country kind of um, elitist mindset that really doesn't do any credit, isn't giving it enough credit to the people working really hard here every day. 
you're a journalist, you're a lawyer. Um, I consider you a criminal justice reform advocate. You're the president of The Appeal. You host the podcast Justice in America. And in every episode of that podcast, you take a topic from the criminal justice system and describe what it is and how it works. This summer, you were a guest on Late Night with Seth Meyer. You were on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Um, I should also add that you were very pregnant during the pandemic. (laughs) I was. (laughs) And the Black Lives Matter movement taking a front row. Um, So I want to start by asking you, um, (laughs) how has this last year been for you personally? Yeah, it's been a crazy year, right? I mean, I was just talking to my mother-in-law about where we were this time last year and how we were all like, 2020, yay. And obviously it hasn't um, played out exactly how we would have hoped with the pandemic. Um, And yeah, I I spent the first nine months of this year pregnant. I had my daughter um, in mid-September and it was kind of a strange time to be to see the George Floyd protest, to kind of see people on the street constantly and be part of kind of that movement, but also not really be able to be part of the movement. I think the interesting thing about 2020 will be hindsight, but I also think it's been kind of amazing to watch just the ways that people are rethinking their relationship to law enforcement, really rethinking their relationship to government, rethinking their relationship to civic action. I think everybody in the country can say they're not who they were last year, and, and maybe in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. I think one of the things that you're able to do with both your penmanship and your understanding of the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. and your legal understanding as a a lawyer with a JD, I think that you are able to understand the system and we are able to get an informed opinion from you on the best way to address it, either as an individual case or a larger complex topic. The best thing about being a lawyer is not being a lawyer. (laughs) Um, The best thing about being a lawyer is that I made great friends in law school, but I have not really ever practiced law. Um, I definitely think it has given me like a good baseline of understanding of the criminal justice system, which I'm very grateful for. Um, But other than that, the best thing is not doing it. It's a really opaque system dealing with the criminal justice system. And if you're not in it, it's hard to understand. There are so many points of contact and it's intentionally opaque, right? The people in the system don't want you to totally understand how the system works because it allows for like more control and less oversight. So I think part of my goal and my mandate is to try to make it easier for people who think, okay, I know that mass incarceration is a thing, um, and I know that there's police violence, right? Um, But what's actually happening from beginning to end, and how is mass incarceration functioning, and who's irresponsible, and you know, what can I do? And that's sort of the hope of what we try to do on the on on the podcast. One of the articles that you wrote uh, was published in Vanity Fair this summer. Um, There's a quote from your article where you say, white safety is cancer prevention, black safety is all-day chemotherapy. Abolition seeks to eradicate this Jim Crow system. And I really was thinking about this sentence a lot and thinking about, I wonder what you can say about publishing that um, during this um, instrumental year yeah, it's an interesting question because I think if I had written this article last year, I would have gotten like a lot of hate mail and feedback and negativity. And this year, I didn't really. Like I, you know, Vanity Fair is a publication that has an elite audience. It's not, um, it's not like a 
magazine for organizers. And this was a special issue and it was edited by Tanasi Coates and it like obviously within it had a lot of content that I don't think Vanity Fair normally runs. But these ideas are in people's heads now and they weren't in April. The idea of defunding the police was not something most people talked about. Um, and I kind of remember the first time I sort of heard these ideas. I, I sort of first heard them from my friend Marbray, who is someone I just deeply admire who does this work. And I've worked with in various capacities over the past decade or so. And she asked that question. And my first reaction was like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we take away resources from the police? We just need to make the police better. But quickly, I came to realize there's a real conversation to be had about the different relationships that people have with the police. In poor communities, black and brown communities, the investment is happening in police, in prisons, in in rich communities and communities with resources, the investment is happening in schools, in jobs, in good parks, in healthcare. And so that is sort of what I was trying to get at with that line, which is there are ways to treat cancer. And hopefully you want to treat it in a way that you never get it. And so it's actually been kind of an interesting experience in that people are not don't seem totally shaken by the idea, which I think is just another example of how things have changed in the past year. A lot of people are learning that defund the police is a shorthand for reimagine what it could look like to reinvest in communities, mm-hmm. not just your own community. I wonder if you can take this idea and relate it to what your work looks like in this year mm-hmm. in the realm of the Georgia runoffs. We're looking at two Senate seats that are up And I wonder, in the context of your work, if you could kind of give us the Josie framework of what your work could look like Mm -hmm. in like these two different approaches, depending on the the outcome of these Senate races. Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is sort of how I look at all elections, that elections are harm reduction. They're an opportunity to play offense. I don't think... The conversation is ever like, are these people exactly what I would design if I designed an elected official? It's do we want to be able to play offense or defense? And there are so many amazing progressive policies out there, but it's very hard to even engage with them when you're trying to just protect people's basic rights to live, right? And that's what happens when you have a Senate comprised of people like David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. These are people who tried to make a buck off the pandemic as elected officials. It's just extremely depressing because these are people who are supposed to be looking out for the lives of Georgians. Seeing Georgia go blue has been kind of like an interesting and thrilling experience for everybody. But I also really, truly believe that in this moment, the right is going to push hard back. And the only way that Republicans can kind of keep power in this country is by reducing opportunities to vote, not increasing them, right? We see it with the president right now. We see it with across the country that people are basically saying, if Democrats win, there's been fraud. And so I I say that all to say that the opportunity for, for invention and rethinking community and investing in communities is drastically different if you have a Republican Senate versus a Democratic one. And I think that also stands internally in Georgia. It's time for the Republican stronghold to recognize that the state is changing and and work accordingly. And I don't think that's happened yet. And now maybe we have an opportunity for that to actually change. 
So if you were giving us the the snapshot of where we are now in Georgia compared to the rest of the country in terms of mass incarceration and the criminal justice system, what is your take on it? Well, in Georgia, we have a particularly tough system um, because of at least as of like last year, we had more people under correctional control than any other state. That doesn't mean more people in prison. Um And that's partly because in Georgia, we keep people on parole and probation for a really long time, like twice as long as a lot of other states. And in some ways, I think there's bipartisan opportunities for that to change. But that probably will be more local and state-based, and it won't be federally based. Um, I really want um, Reverend Warnock and, and John Ossoff to go to the Senate. I think that would be just incredible. I don't want people to think that that alone is going to change the mass incarceration system in Georgia because so little of that is federal. Most of it's happening on the state and local level. But rhetoric matters. Even if they don't have a direct influence over policy, that rhetoric influences the way that people think. And so I I do think it would be really critical to have um, them in the Senate. On one hand, we have someone like the president who's like locked them up treat them harshly, no oversight. Um, So to have people in office who are willing to consider something a little bit more nuanced, complicated, and humane would be huge. (laughs) I was listening to one of your episodes with um, on Justice in America. I was listening to your conversation with with Sherilyn Eiffel. And she has, she beautifully, and in a heartbreaking way describes her first knowledge of the criminal justice system. She describes being 10 years old when a 10-year-old boy in her neighborhood was killed by the police because he, quote, looked like a suspect. Do you have a first knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I have a lot of moments where I probably should have realized that something was off and not okay. Um, I think I, you know, I went to public schools here in Atlanta, And we had cops in our schools, like in middle school, we had cops in our schools. I remember kids getting arrested in middle school. I definitely remember a lot of kids sort of falling out of the school system when we were in high school and ending up in jail and prison. Did I have like a really conscious understanding then of that this was an injustice? No, I don't think I did. And I think it took me kind of a long time, I think probably college for me to see just how how screwed up this was. My real sort of opening, eye-opening experience came when I left college and went to go work at the public defender's office. And and I'm ashamed it took me that long because I feel like I had many opportunities to to see what kind of system we were working with. But that's how it works, right? I mean, the way that the system works and the way that it replicates and the reason it's allowed to kind of exist unchecked in so many ways is because it just becomes normal. You know, it was like normal that we had Officer Johnson, our school police officer. We It was normal that we had to go through through metal detectors. It was normal that we had more cops and college counselors. It was normal that, that always the like looming threat was arrest or punishment. And it felt like just regular old, you know, school or regular old life. Sherilyn Eiffel, who's one of the most brilliant people on earth, probably could see something at 10 that I couldn't see at 20. But I think for most people, so much of our experience is dictated by how normal that experience is. I remember walking by the Bronx courthouse when I worked at 
Bronx Defenders right out of college. Um, I worked as an assistant. You know, it was just a good job. I, I didn't really have sort of like a political orientation at that time. But walking by the courthouse and seeing families stand outside in the cold really shocked me. And I remember that being kind of a constant memory of mine, just every morning walking by and seeing in the cold in the winter and seeing people standing outside when they could have been waiting inside in the lobby, but, you know, they didn't want people waiting inside in the lobby. That kind of sticks out to me as 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 a first, like, real moment of understanding the weight of the system on people in the community. But in general, I think it took me probably longer than it should have. And how does professional experience contrast with personal experience. Um, what have you learned about the criminal justice system as a family member? I, I'm wondering if you feel comfortable talking about your brother. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I have a, a brother slash friend, I guess is probably the best way to refer to him, who has kind of become part of my family as an adult. And he was my friend growing up. And the reason he's become part of my family is because he has kind of a complicated family situation. And when he got in and out of the criminal justice system, that kind of created a rift in, in his family. And he has addiction issues. He has a history of addiction. And um, and that has dictated his involvement in the system. But watching him has been just like an exercise in frustration, I think, for me, among other things. it's It can be really depressing. You know, for many years, he was on probation, and he was sort of in and out of jail. And it was just like a, a kind of constant stressor hanging over. He's It's been 10 years now. And so he's recently got off probation, pretty recently. But, you know, what you could really tell through his experience was that he needed a strong treatment plan. He needed stability. He needed a place that was his apartment. He needed a job that he liked. He needed opportunity. And he needed to be able to kind of address the issues that were driving his addiction, including, I think, depression, anxiety, like a lot of just internal struggles that he was facing. And instead, he got more time on probation, or he got a couple months in jail, or he got ridiculous appointments he had to meet when he was supposed to be at work. It was just a total misunderstanding of what he needed. And it will impact the rest of his life, right? Like it kept him from voting for a long time. Every time he applies for a job, if they do a background check, they see how, that he has a criminal record. And I don't, I don't like the term violent person anyway. But, you know, by any measure, he's not violent. This is not a joyride for him. It's a struggle. And I think watching him kind of go through the system has absolutely made it a lot more personal to me. I think the other thing it's really done is made you realize how this system kind of like just makes it so difficult to keep a relationship with your loved ones when it's in it, right? So when he was in jail, mm. to call him, you had to spend a ton of money, uh, you know, with one of the phone companies, or you had to spend a ton of money with one of the video chat companies. Or just even to get on the list. Sometimes in prisons, they only allow you to have a certain list and you can only update that list once a month. And you can only call out. You can't receive calls. Right. It was just, you know, my dad went to go visit him and he couldn't actually visit him because they don't do in-person visits. They only do video visits. And I would send books and he couldn't have the books because they weren't the same regulation size or whatever it was. And um, that has been kind of a really illuminating experience for me because it, you know, we, we talk a lot about rehabilitation. One way that people, quote unquote, rehabilitate is relationships. And our system disincentivizes that. You know, 
when you about half of all people in the country know someone or have a close friend or family member in prison um, or in the system. And he has really made me one of those people. You know, he's he's family to us. And it has been an exercise in frustration to see how difficult it is to to watch him kind of navigate such a harsh system. Coming up, Josie talks about what it's like to be a living legacy. That's after the break. You know, part of your job as um, a trained lawyer and a writer, you're, I've seen your writing really evolve. Um, and, you know, you have some beautiful personal essays that you've published and I've seen you write about your own experiences as well as really break down policy. Uh, I've seen it in Slate. I've seen it in New York Times, Vanity Fair. And one of the things that I really wanted to understand about you and that I think would be really helpful for maybe aspiring advocates and activists to, to understand is how can you describe the journey that writing has taken you? You know, I've been writing longer than I've been doing anything else. I was a, in the creative writing program in college. I, Our mutual friend and I uh, started Poetry Club when I was in high school. We uh, Writing has always been kind of like the way that I've best expressed myself and the best way for me to navigate what matters to me. The most important part of my journey when it comes to writing has been embracing um editing criticism and someone telling me that I could do something better and say something better. Wow. I wasn't expecting you to say that. Yeah, no. I mean, I I feel really lucky when I was in college and I did the creative writing program. You know, the way that it works is that you write something and then a room of 10 people tell you what they don't like about it. It starts out your feelings are hurt, but then it's such a gift. There are very few kind of jobs on earth where you have the ability to get that level of input Mm. um, and in a way that you know actually makes you better. And so what makes me sad about about the field right now is that I don't always think that editors have the level of time that they Mm. need to kind of do that intense work. And I also don't think that a lot of writers appreciate good Mm. editing. Um, I think it's very hard to get criticism if you're not used to it. Mm -hmm. What I really think is that having, you know, having people who will give you feedback on your ideas is such a gift. I mean, I write probably less now than I have in in a long time. um, And I hope that changes soon. Um, But when I think about how to become a good writer, it's just practice, just doing it every single day, no matter what. And it's just having someone who will help you become better. Anybody can do this well if they are willing to open themselves up to well-meaning, constructive criticism and just practice. I'm reminded of an article you wrote for The Atlantic using Pusha T's lyrics as an entry point to talk about the drug war and the derision of the quote-unquote addict who deserves society's isolation and harsh punishment includes recollections of a friend lost to a drug overdose and the kind of sadness of uh, the end of one's life eclipsing one's Mm. beauty in life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the amazing things that um, 
I've seen your your work and is it is an interview between you and your grandmother. You're Josie five. Your grandmother's Josie number three. And one of the things that your grandmother said was, and I'm paraphrasing here, so forgive me, but it was, the question was like, can you recommend a book or a writer? And your grandmother said, there are so many amazing black women writers, and it's our obligation to read their words and memorize these words. And I I don't know if I realized it in that moment watching that interaction, but I was thinking about your words and like how you so beautifully share your experience, but tie it to a greater human experience. I don't know if you were thinking of yourself as like one of those writers. I was not. It's interesting that you would bring up that article in particular because um, the editing I got on that article was the toughest editing I had ever gotten (laughs) to that point. Really. I mean, I had started out with kind of an idea and what came, how it ended up was much bigger and much more eloquent than how it started. And the reason was because someone was willing to be like, no, this idea doesn't make sense. You should push this further. What about this? So I say that just to say that, like, it's really easy to read what someone has written and think that it just kind of came out of their head, head fully formed. It's not. Um, Every good idea I've ever had on the paper has been um, a joint project between me and someone who has been willing to push me. I I really do believe that. And I think um, what my grandmother said is right, that like there are all these amazing black women writing and the ability to, to read them is a gift. And also, I think one of the ways in which we've we're hopefully getting better is that we're providing black women with the structures and the resources they need to do that level of writing because it it is not something I mean there are very few people on the planet who can kind of like sit down and write something where you think okay this is fully this you don't need anything you don't need to change this at all right but most of us need a lot of help and um and that I think if I were going to name one piece where I would say I got a ton of help it would definitely be that one I'm really lucky that I have the grandmother I have. She's 90 this year. She lives in Minnesota and she's kind of been doing civil rights work her whole life. And I definitely come from a political family writ large, but my grandmother in particular has influenced and been such a major part of the way that I think about any sort of change. I'm just trying to kind of follow in her footsteps as best as I can, but she exceeds you know, she exceeds me on every single level times 10, which I am am lucky to learn from her. But I do think that like having family like this and really having any sort of family lineage of people who in big or small ways did what they could to make change. It's just a reminder that like this is a long process. When you think about how long my grandmother has been um, – trying to ensure basic equality she was 15 when she started when she first started functionally organizing she's 90 now and like Donald Trump is president right and a lot is better a lot is better um and some things aren't better um and this is a fight that'll be going on long after she's gone long after I'm gone and so I think keeping perspective can be really difficult um it can be really frustrating and depressing to be like oh, my God, we've been doing this for 10 years and not enough has changed. We've been doing this for 20 years and not enough has changed. And the fact is, once you kind of give yourself up to the realization that it's not going to be 10 or 20 years, it's going to be generations, it's a little freeing, I think, because it makes you realize that it's actually not about 
what we see or what my grandmother saw. It's about what our kids see and maybe their kids. You're doing this for generations in the future. And it just people, it takes a long time for things to change. You sound like a mom. (laughs) I am a mom. (laughs) I am the ultimate mom right now. Do you feel like that um, the longevity and time frame has changed for you with kids? Like you had that realization looking at your grandma. I think probably both. I think my perspective with kids has, it's made it a little bit more urgent in the sense that it's a lot to bring kids into this world. I mean, I brought two children into the world during the Donald Trump administration, which, you know, really, really made me wonder, like, am I making the right decision? Is this going to be okay for my kids? I definitely think like, I want my kids to live in a safe world. I don't want them to go extinct. I don't, you know, I don't want the human race to go extinct in their lifetime because we couldn't get our shit together when it comes to the environment. But I also don't expect that things will be figured out for them. I just, I don't. And, you know, my mom had kids, I'm sorry, my grandmother had kids in the 1950s, where in parts of the country, most, you know, many parts of the country, her family didn't even have basic civil rights. And so I think part of having kids is like of exercise and hope. But I also think the idea that everything can be perfect for the next generation is also an illusion. You know, this is bringing up for me like ideas around like community. And, you know, you talk about your family a lot. And like, I, you know, you and I kind of know each other through this kind of incredible Atlanta community. Um, Absolutely. You've, you've spoken about how your grandma, uh, Josie, number three, has been an activist. She worked on poll tax. She's been working for voters' rights for decades. Um, but your father also has been really active in Atlanta politics and worked for the first black mayor of Atlanta, Maynard Jackson. And I was wondering if you can speak to that legacy a little bit and describe how you decided to give your daughter uh, her name. I come from a lot of people who are constantly reminding me that like our obligation in this world is to something bigger than us and that we owe it to the world to, to, to leave it better than we got it. And I think, I think that's also about like reading books and reading history, right? It, it's very easy for the world to seem narrow and small and about you. And the reality is that like in a good way, we are all one very small speck in a very big world and um, in a very long history. And we are all kind of connected in that way, in a way that really matters. And so for me, like I grew up with the name Josie, my grandmother had the name Josie, my aunt's name is Josie, there were two other Josies before them. And when I was a kid, it was like, so annoying. I'm like, (laughs) Josie's an old name. And like, you know, I every time we're there's a family function, someone says Josie, and 10 people turn around, like, (laughs) you know, but it has also, I mean, it, it the older I've gotten, the more of a gift it has really been, because it connects me to these women men that existed before I did and that all were sort of doing in their own way, trying to survive and trying to make things a little bit better. And and they're very different. Like my aunt is this incredible lawyer. She's very different than my grandmother, who's was an educator and a civil rights activist. You know, they're very different than I am in, in many ways. But all of us, I think, feel tied to a much bigger legacy. And I wanted that for my daughter. I mean, I think for me, it's been both in some ways a burden to to come from people who 
who do see sort of like impact like this as so important. But doing stuff is what keeps me alive and like keeps me from sinking into like serious depression too. People often are like, how do you deal? How do you like look at the criminal justice system all day? And I'm like, this is what actually gives me hope. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when your world is too small, it's very hard to kind of see the point. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so I hope she doesn't hate me for it. I hated my parents for it for a while and I got over it. So one thing I keep thinking about is I was talking to a friend of mine who said like, I was just saying maybe it'll make her life more difficult, you know, Mm -hmm. and she was saying like our job is actually not to make our kids lives as easy as possible. And I that really Mm -hmm. stuck with me because I think that's true. And I think my instinct is to kind of be like, how can I get all of the tough stuff out of the way for you? And that's not our job, right? Our job Mm -hmm. is to like give, you know, to make our kids as resilient as possible, to make them strong, to make them empathetic, but it's not to make their lives easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll have to come back on the women in like, in like 10 years and we can like interview her and see how she's feeling about it. But so far, um, so far she seems, she seems okay with it at three months old. Wow. Um, I was revisiting one of the things that you wrote for Gawker. It was uh, the men who left were white. Can I read the last bit to you? Oh yeah, sure. This is a story about history, about identity. The way we've come to fetishize white features on black bodies is not only dangerous because of the way it reinforces the idea of white is better. For someone like me, it's complicated for an additional reason. The part of me that created those white features came from men who would deny me if given the chance, and discreet men who took advantage of women and left. Men who not only abandoned their children, but in some cases sold them, had their own children bent over in fields for no pay. I'm a living remnant of that sexual assault. I'm a living remnant of that pain. I can see it in my thinner hair, my lighter skin, my freckles. I think of those children, also my blood, and what it means to grow up marred by that abandonment and shame. And I'm going to skip ahead to the last couple sentences. Surely our genetic material runs rife with strands of the conquered and the conqueror. And maybe there's a fourth thing you should know. Part of my identity is choice. My identity is defined in part by rejection, including my own. I am Black. The people who made me are the ones who never left. I was wondering if you had a different take on it now that you're a mom and now that you're a mom of a daughter. Yeah, it's an interesting question if I feel differently about that. I wrote that before I even, I hadn't met my husband yet. And that feeling, I think, hasn't changed at all. I think having kids has been kind of interesting because my kids look very different. My husband um, is biracial, meaning his father who passed away five years ago was white. His mother is black. But my husband would say he's black. You know, that's not a rejection of his father, but it's an acknowledgement of how he moves through the world. I think the way in which we inherit trauma and inherit history is complicated. It is real. Our our lived experiences are related to the lived experiences of the people who carried us and who carried them and who carried them. And so what I I think about my daughter um, is I expect to have the same feelings about her that I do about me when it comes to that essay. If, if, If she 
you know, has any features that are kind of traditionally considered white, it's very important to me that they're not fetishized and privileged over ones that are traditionally considered, traditionally identified as black. But I also think, how can we lighten the load on women, particularly black women who are coming into this world? Because that level of, of, of historical subjugation is real and I do think that we have not kind of as a we kind of think we start clean with every generation it's just not how it works coming up our lightning round on the women Josie puts the truth in truth or truth just kidding I ask her personal questions and we get some juicy answers like always and yes of course it involves celebrity gossip that's after the break This is called Truth or Truth, going light after we go deep. It's our lightning round on the women. And I I want to start by saying, so we have a mutual God sister. We do. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope she's listening. (laughs) How would you, uh, if you could pick three words, how Uh would you describe like kind of this quirky, very um, playful, very like female focused kind of network of women that you and I operate in? Oh, that's a good one. Um, loud. They're okay. loud women. Um, <laughs> um, ab- opinionated. And I mean that in the best way possible. I have these memories of sitting around tables as kids with her family and arguing about like really big ideas, right? Yeah. And, and that being okay, kids being allowed to to do that. And then I think the third thing would be generous. This mm. is a community of people who... Um, has always been there for me at really tough times. In Mm -hmm. fact, um, I, what, five or six years ago, got in a car accident on the way back from a wedding. Your parents, (laughs) your parents were the ones who, in the middle of the night, um, came and (laughs) saved us, you know, and and, um, we were on like a dark, like poorly lit road in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. And they really, um, they really saved like just really saved our lives that night my parents showing up in a car with laughter is like (laughs) yeah very yeah it was amazing it was it was really incredible and so I think I mean I'm so lucky to kind of be part of this community of women who have seen some really tough things who have gone through some really hard times and have come out on the other side like hopeful laughing and supportive loud opinionated and generous is how I'm um are my three adjectives I love that. Have you been indulging in people.com recently? I always indulge in people.com. It's my favorite website. I go to it every day. <laughs> this is how I relax. You realize that I'm going to title this. They're just Josie Duffy Rice, colon. She's just like us. I, I like it. See, I'm on people.com right now. And the number one thing is Real Housewives <laughs> of Salt Lake City. That's amazing. That's all I want to think about. Um. As well we should because the way that they come up with like fur wedged heel snow boots is is unbelievable. It's a great show. We should do a whole episode on it because I'm obsessed. And the last thing is um, we could do a whole episode on your dad. I'm wondering if you remember uh, this uh, text that you posted. (laughs) Like I forget if he wrote it to you or your sister saying like what he would do. To one of the boys we were dating. That was mean. 
this Reaper will be real grim with the munchkin. And if you think they can't find Jimmy Hoffa, I will vaporize him. Yeah, he's he's a brilliant writer. He just uses it all in text messages to us. But one day I'm going to go through my text messages and do like a coffee table book of stuff my dad has sent because it remains just some of the most outrageous things that you could ever imagine. It never stops. It's every day. My my yeah, my post-pandemic dream for the Josie Duffy Rice, our mutual god sister, and us having our like non-pandemic spitting and like using leaning and droplets as much as we want is <laughs> the setting is Atlanta, your sister's bookstore, with your dad giving the opening remarks. I love it. Let's do it. That's the best kind of hopeful thing we can imagine. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you for you your so work. Much. This has been so fun. I know. I love talking to you. I'm going to, um, I'm really excited that you had me on and I'm really grateful. Check out Josie's podcast, Justice in America. And you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at J Duffy Rice. That's J-D-U-F-F-Y-R-I-C-E. Ashley Fielding is going to read this episode's credits. You can read the women credits by sending us an email at thewomenpod at gmail.com. And happy holidays, y'all. We hope you enjoyed your Hanukkah. Have a Merry Christmas and a happy Kwanzaa. Hello, I'm Ashley Fielding calling from Hayhara, Georgia. The Women is a production of the host, Rose Reed. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Thanks to our team, Gail Reed and Nora Kipnis. And a very special thanks to Wendy Zuckerman, Samantha Reed Avenia, Jen Shippen, Harley Bosco, and Clara Green. You can find the show on Instagram at The Women Pod. If you have questions about voting in Georgia, visit georgia.gov. And if you enjoyed this episode, you should totally tell a family member or a friend. There will be more episodes leading up to the January 5th elections about the key women on the ground. So check back in a couple of days. Okay, that's it. Bye.